In the year 609 BC, King Josiah of Judah died. Josiah had reigned 31 years in, it, in Judah and had brought in some significant changes, some significant reforms in Judah, and led people back to the true worship of God. His grandfather, Manasseh, had been one of the most wicked kings in Judah's history. But under Josiah, there was some reprieve and there was reform. People were coming back to the Lord. However, he was killed in a battle by the Egyptians, and his reforms were soon forgotten. Three months after his death, Pharaoh Necho of Egypt would instill Josiah's son Jehoiakim as king of Judah. Jehoiakim was a godless and ruthless man. In 2 Kings 24.4, we are told that he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. Filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. This is the same king who fearlessly and casually ripped up and burned Jeremiah's scroll as it was read to him. If you'll recall that from Jeremiah 36, just in complete defiance of the word of the Lord, as it's read to him, he rips off pieces and throws it in the fire. Jeremiah also tells us in chapter 26 that Jehoiakim himself killed a prophet by the name of Uriah with the sword. So just a, a, a man of unspeakable evil and disdain for the Lord and for his word and for the Lord's servants who were bringing that word. On the world stage at this time, it was a period also of transition, turmoil, and uncertainty. Assyria, the reigning superpower, who had taken the northern kingdom of Israel into exile, if you'll recall, was starting at this time to lose ground. And it was losing ground to the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Egypt also still a significant, though declining, empire at this time, asserted control over affairs in Israel, as seen in the fact that they uh, defeated Josiah and he was killed in battle against the Egyptians. Uh, then, then, uh, his, uh, they then deposed just, uh, Josiah's son Eliakim. They took him off the throne. He only reigned three months. And then they instill Jehoiakim as king. So it is in this tumultuous time and situation that the prophet Habakkuk received his revelation from the Lord. It is in this time of horrific injustice and oppression and grave uncertainty of what the future would hold that the book of Habakkuk was written. And in this book, we find Habakkuk's cry of complaint before God as he laments the awful times, and wonders where God is. And he's asking, essentially, God, where are you? Where is your justice? And what we will see, and, and we, as, we, as we go, and, and what you probably already realize, is that's not simply a question that was relevant in the 7th century B.C. It's one of mankind's deepest questions in every generation. As we look around us, and see injustice and a seemingly out-of-control world, it, 
it's very common to ask and wonder, God, where are you in this? Where is your justice? Why do you permit this? As we look at our world, for example, just to name one example of tremendous injustice, we see the celebration and the promotion of the wholesale slaughter of unborn babies, unborn children. Even our conservative governments that are supposedly pro-life do little or nothing to change this or address this. One of our former politicians here even once told me, you know, he, he's pro-life, but he weighs, you know, what hills are worth dying on. <laughs> okay. And so we wonder, God, where are you in this? How could you possibly allow this and not burn things up with fire at the slaughter of innocent children? Where is the justice? And Habakkuk expresses this sentiment to God, and he gets a response from God, which is instructive for us, even as we have our own days of uncertainty and look around and see evil and morality twisted every which way. And as we go, we're going to see, as we work our way through the book of Habakkuk, we're going to see that we are called to live by faith as we walk through this renegade world, this rebellious world. And we're going to see what that looks like, what that means to live by faith in, in a world such as this. So turn with me to Habakkuk 1. We're going to be in Habakkuk for the next four weeks. That's the plan anyway. And so turn to chapter 1. And today we're going to see that living by faith means trusting that God is still governing the world even when it doesn't seem like it. Even when it doesn't seem like it, God is still trusting the world and we're called to trust that that's true. Trust God in this. And so we're going to make our way through this passage, the first 11 verses, and we're going to look at um, first uh, things from the human perspective in verses 1 to 4, followed by the divine reality that God lets us in on in verses 5 to 11. So two, two chunks here. And so first, the human perspective. And the human perspective is this, that sometimes it seems like God has relinquished control of the world. Sometimes it seems like God has relinquished control of the world, and it's chaos, it's out of control, injustice is everywhere. It can appear that way. So read with me starting in verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Oracle is essentially synonymous with divine revelation, but it also carries with it the connotation of burden or weight. So some older translations, some translations will actually say the burden of Habakkuk. And so that it helps us to illustrate the, that the revelation that the prophet receives weighs upon him heavily. It's a, it's a burden, this oracle, it's divine revelation, and it's a heavy thing for him. And we're going to see why that is. The man Habakkuk, we don't know much more about him other than this book. Um, although we can tell some things, as we will see, and as I started the, the message with, uh, about the, the context in which he was uh, given this message and in the time in which he was serving the Lord, which we'll talk a little bit more about in a moment. So the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, 
And then we get to verse 2. Here's Habakkuk's lament. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. You can feel in those words the anguish that Habakkuk has. And if you've ever been in that place of lament, you perhaps even shudder as you read those words, knowing the pain of feeling God's silence and distance in the midst of trouble and distress. It's not a pleasant time and situation, and it's not a pleasant feeling, and it comes out in Habakkuk's lament, in his complaint. In verse 2, it's clear that this lament has long troubled him, as he asks, How long shall I cry for help? This is not the first time he's brought this to the Lord. He's been crying out, How long am I going to do this? And so his complaint here is that God is not listening. He's not hearing. He's crying out to God about the violence he sees. And yet, God has not intervened. As mentioned, it was a day in which the king himself filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. Prophets were persecuted, and at least one even killed. And God had not intervened. Though the righteous men like Habakkuk cried out to him, still nothing. Things just carried on. Injustice prevailed. In verse 3, Habakkuk wonders why he asks God, why he's made to look at iniquity. that He can't escape it. When he goes out, it's everywhere before him. And indeed, anyone trying to live a godly life in our age can identify with this. Even when you try your best to not see iniquity, it gets paraded before your eyes. You can't go anywhere without seeing it. And this is what he's expressing here. It's everywhere. He, everywhere he goes, he's made to look at it. Why? Why is this, God? Why are you doing this? And he asks God, why do you idly look at wrong? Why do you look at wrong and do nothing? That's what he wants to know. It, it appears as though God is just watching. He's just standing there. He has the capability of doing something, and he's just not. He's just looking at it and watching it. That's what he's saying here. Why do you look at it and not do anything? You just, it seems as though you're standing there. This is the human perspective. All this bad stuff's happening. We're asking you for help. Nothing. Why? Why are you not doing anything about this wrong? Meanwhile, destruction, violence, strife, he says, contention, these things arise. These things are everywhere. And the end result of all that, verse 4, is that the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. God's law is muted. It's silenced. Justice is absent. Wickedness reigns. 
Because as Habakkuk sees it, God's not doing anything about this. And so the law is silenced, wickedness rules. And this is clearly happening in the fact that, as, as he laments here, the wicked surround the righteous. Habakkuk sees that everything's upside down. Rather than the righteous prevailing and wickedness being punished and justice prevailing amongst God's people, instead it is the wicked who surround and oppress the righteous. And so it is that justice, he says, goes forth perverted. It's twisted. It's twisted up. Justice does not prevail. What's considered just is backwards. Everything's backwards. The wicked are surrounding the righteous. This is all wrong. This is all backward. And so as we read through this, it's not hard to see that this lament is appropriate throughout the ages. It's for nearly all times and all places in human history. This is a very common experience. Moreover, this, the question of where is God and where is His justice, it's not just a question for philosophers to talk about with big words in academic settings. It's a question that I submit most of us have thought about and wondered at some point in time. Where are you? How could, you, how could God, how could you let this happen? How could this continue on? How much longer must we cry out? Us ordinary people, we feel this and we wonder about this. And again, consider our world. I've already mentioned that abortion runs rampant. Somewhere around 100,000 a year in our own country. We don't really keep statistics anymore. I imagine that in part helps to ease our consciences. But around 100,000. So it's roughly 250 to 275 babies killed every day. Every day. 56 million in the world every year. Every more than one a second. And yet, with that catastrophe happening and celebrated and promoted and paid for by those that should be protecting, the hip Issues of our day include so-called climate justice, gender justice, and so on. In fact, if you try to raise a voice at abortion, you'll be silenced, and you will indeed be surrounded by wicked people who will accuse you of hating women. It's completely crazy, and that's our world. That's the world we live in. I'm not, this is not fear-mongering. That's just, you know that's true. It's a reality. It's what Habakkuk talks about here. The wicked will surround the righteous. Just try. Just try to talk about abortion being wrong and evil. There's lots of other examples of injustice. Our own prime minister's recent actions awarding a terrorist millions of dollars by bypassing the legal system, the legal process, and thereby cutting off any chance of the victim's widow from legally seizing the funds. I mean, look, we're for justice, but that's not it. We celebrate in our country, in our part of the world, nearly every sexual deviation in the name of justice, while those who criticize or refuse to acquiesce are accused of hate speech and in some cases open to being charged for it. We could go on. There's lots of examples of injustice, and we live in a great country. 
I mean, comparatively to the rest of the world. I mean, this is in a pretty good, we have it pretty good, all things considered. And yet, and yet, we can look out and see incredible injustice. And again, I'm, I'm not simply trying to spread fear. This is just our world, and you know it. That which is morally evil in many cases has become that which is touted as the only morally upright position. Injustice is everywhere. And it can lead us to wonder, where, where is God in this? Where is God's justice? Why has he not stopped this? And if we broaden our perspective outside of our own country, there's a lot more things that can make us wonder if God's really in control or question if he's in control. There's genocide, in, I mean outright genocide in many countries in the world. Genocide Watch is an organization. According to them, there's at least eight countries right now in the throes of full-scale genocide, and there's probably more. And that's not talking about abortion, which is around the world. There's many wicked governments all over who rig elections, who really actually rig elections. Uh, I met a guy even from Estonia this spring. Their country's democratic, but it's really corrupt, he says with a laugh, laugh and they just know it. They just, there's nothing you can really do about it. Everyone knows things are rigged. They go about their business. That's injustice. There's totalitarian rulers as well, filling their streets with violence, keeping their people in poverty while they get rich. I mean, it's all around the world. We've come through the bloodiest century in history, and the next one, we have no guarantees. Could be just as bad or, or worse. And so there's many ways and many times in which it appears that God's justice is absent, and like God himself is standing by, idly, just watching, doing nothing about it. Giving up control is what it seems like sometimes. The deists seem perhaps like they're right. Like maybe God is a clockmaker and he just created everything. He wound it all up and, and he let it go. And now he just simply stands back with no intervention or care. That's what it can seem like from a human perspective. And notice one thing here too that when Habakkuk feels this way, he addresses his cries to God. He doesn't simply complain about him. He expresses his grief to the Lord. And I think that's instructive for us. I think we should be careful how we express our grief to God. Um, we should not come to him with a swagger about it. I think we see it in Job. He crosses a line and we read God's reaction where Job uh, God responds to Job, and it's very um, harsh, <laughs> and Job knows it and repents of, his, of his, the line he crossed and questioning God, so we need to be careful how we do it. Nevertheless, we are to bring our, our cries to God. We are to cry out to Him, take our cares to Him. And so from a human perspective, it sometimes seems as though God has relinquished control of the world. But let's keep reading. And look at the divine perspective. The divine reality is that God is always actively governing the world in ways we cannot fully grasp. God is always actively governing the world in ways we cannot fully grasp. So let's read starting in verse 5. The Lord responds to Habakkuk, Look among the nations and see. 
Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from far off. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. So God begins his response to Habakkuk by telling him to look out among the nations, to see what's happening, and to be astounded, to be amazed by this. And he says, For I am doing work in your days that you would not believe if told. Contrary to what Habakkuk saw to his perception, God says he was at work. I am at work. I'm doing a work, he says. He is moving. He is active. He's not simply standing idly by. He is working. And yet, it is in a way that is surprising. He says, you would not believe if told. I once heard this verse ripped out of context and preached as like an exciting thing that... uh, This man was telling his church, oh, the Lord's got great things in store, uh, doing really exciting things. Um, And he reads this this verse, um, I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Wow, great things. This is exciting. Um, But that's not, that's like out of, that is uh, the epitome of ripping a verse out of context and applying it in the exact opposite way it's meant. Um, The thing that he wouldn't believe is God's going to go on to explain that he's bringing the Babylonian Empire to bring judgment on Judah. That's, that's, that's probably not, we can say, what Habakkuk had in mind. He would desire a deliverance, perhaps the Messiah to come and, and, and bring the, him and the other righteous with him and, and, and vindicate them. That would be good and right. And yet that's not what God's doing here. It's a surprising answer. You would not believe if told. This shows us that the way in which God is at work is not necessarily how we might expect or how we might think or even how we might want Him to work. He goes on to explain what this means. He says, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. When you see Chaldean in Scripture, think Babylon. Think Babylonians. Chaldeans were technically uh, one ethnic tribe that lived in Babylonia, but they became prominent in the Neo-Babylonian Empire, and eventually that word becomes synonymous with the Babylonians. So if you think of Nebuchadnezzar, you remember that name, you know that name. Um, his father, Nabopolassar, was the first king of this empire. They were Chaldeans. And so they became prominent within, it becomes a, within the kingdom, and it basically becomes a synonym. So you'll see that in, in this book and elsewhere as well. When you see Chaldeans, think Babylonians. So the way in which God is at work 
is that he's raising up the Babylonians. And what is implied here is that God is raising them up to come and bring judgment on Judah. And in that way, justice is going to prevail. So at the time God tells Habakkuk this, the Babylonians are still likely a few years away from dominance. But the signs were likely there already. Enough so that when God tells him to look out among the nations, he could look out and see what was happening. Babylon is on the rise. Assyria is starting to wane. There's likely a few years yet before they are actually the dominant power, and yet it's happening. He could look out and see what was coming. And God goes on to describe what this nation is like. And this is why it's so shocking and surprising that this is God's answer. He calls them that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth and seize dwellings not their own. These are not a righteous people. These are not a godly people. They snatch up territory that's not yours. No regard for God. They're dreaded and fearsome, he says. They don't claim to worship God. They don't claim to do His bidding. Their justice and their dignity, he says, is of their own making. It's their own definition. They are their own God. The end of verse 7. Uh, they, they, they are their own justice. They make it up as they go. They're not claiming to do the Lord's bidding. And he goes on, God goes on to describe the ferocity of their armor. Their horses are faster than leopards and more fierce than wolves. That's obviously descriptive language that shows just how fierce and terrifying this army is. If their horses are quicker than leopards and more fierce than wolves, wolves are apex predators. And the point here is that, yeah, their, their horses are worse than wolves. These are a ruthless people. Their horsemen are arrogant. It says they fly in like eagles to devour. Eagles swoop in and snatch prey. We like eagles in our house. And you can see videos of them on YouTube. But they swoop in. They come in with great speed. And they'll even pluck their prey right out of the air, in some cases, and fly off with them. And that's how God is describing the Babylonian army. They all come for violence. And they gather captives like sand. You can see how this answer is perplexing. One of Habakkuk's frustrations and cries to the Lord is that there's violence in the land. And now the people that God's raising up to come bring judgment, they're all about violence. So you can see how this is bringing up some questions even as God's answering the cry. They come for violence. They gather captives like sand. As they do this, they scoff. They scoff at kings while laughing at rulers and at fortresses. Oh, that's, that's cute, that fortress. They just laugh at it again. It's a picture of an army that's stopped by nothing. Nothing's getting in their way. A fortress is laughable. That king is cute. Everything, nothing's going to stop them. It's a fierce and devastating army with no regard for justice. And they take what and whomever they please. Like a devastating wind, they blow through nations and are gone again, leaving devastation behind. They are guilty men, God says in verse 11, whose own might is their God. Let's notice a few things about this response. 
The first is that God is, in fact, in control of this situation. God says in verse 5, I am doing a work. And again in verse 6, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. This, of course, raises questions for us. But before we start to address those, first we must note that God is in control. Habakkuk is desiring justice to come, and God is, in fact, in the process of bringing about justice and bringing about judgment. This is showing us an aspect of the doctrine of providence. The doctrine of providence, simply stated, is God controls everything. God controls everything. It's a simple doctrine to state, God controls everything, but it's a hard one to wrestle with in terms of all of its details and all of its implications. So we tend to think of God's providence when good things happen. We'll say, oh, that was providential. That was such a great thing. And that's true. That is providential. But so is the car accident. But we don't, you know, that's harder for us to try to, how could that be God, you know, God's providence for us? You know, how could he want this for me? How could he bring this to me? Um, it's, it's harder to wrestle with. But the doctrines simply stated is not that hard. God controls everything. And one of the ways we see that God controls everything is in his control of nations and kings, including nations and kings who do not bow to him but are in open rebellion against him. Again, this is difficult for us to grapple with, but the fact that God does this, that he controls even godless kings, is plain in Scripture. This text states it very plainly. I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. Very, it's very plain. God does not blame Satan. He doesn't use passive language. He does not say, well, I'm going to allow this to happen, but it's not really my desire, but I'm going to allow it to happen. He doesn't say that. He doesn't use passive language. He uses active language. I am raising up this people. Nebuchadnezzar, the, at this point, when Habakkuk's writing, the, the yet future Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar himself would learn this lesson. If you'll recall in Daniel 4, he's humbled by God. And at the end of his humbling, he says this in 435. For his dominion, God's dominion, is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? That's from Nebuchadnezzar. So notice that in a time... When world powers are changing and wickedness is rampant, God tells Habakkuk, I am doing a work. I am raising up the Chaldeans. I'm in control of this. They will be his agent of judgment on Judah. Just as the Assyrians were God's agent of judgment against the northern kingdom Israel. Isaiah 10 um, will state that very clearly if you want to look there. Uh, he says the Assyrians are like a rod in his hand that he's wielding. 
God will bring about justice. He is in control. In Habakkuk's time, he was not, in fact, just watching idly by. He was planning his judgment, and he was raising up the agents of his judgment. John Frame says this about God's providence. Quote, To say that God's controlling power is efficacious is simply to say that it always accomplishes its purpose. God never fails to accomplish what he sets out to do. Creatures may oppose him, to be sure, but they cannot prevail. For his own reasons, he has chosen to delay the fulfillment of his intentions for the end of history and to bring about those intentions through a complicated historical sequence of events. In that sequence, his purposes appear sometimes to suffer defeat, sometimes to achieve victory, but each apparent defeat actually makes his eventual victory all the more glorious. The cross of Jesus is, of course, the chief example of the principle. Close quote. And we'll come to the cross of Christ a bit later, talk about this a bit more. So as we even look to our world here, now, around us, is God in control of it or is he not? Does he still raise up and depose kings, rulers, nations, or did he stop such activity? Does he control who leads democratic nations or only those that have kings? Did he stop that activity in the days of Nebuchadnezzar? Of course he did not. He is still in control. So we look out from our viewpoint and perspective and we see a world that appears to be a mess. And yet, as we learn here, God is working. He is moving history toward its end. He is in control. Just as the news of Babylon as God's agent of judgment was astounding for Habakkuk, so now we, we don't fully know or understand how it is that God's working. And if we did, we might not totally like it. I mean, this would be kind of like if we cried out to God about the injustice in our own land of the babies that are slaughtered, and God answered us and said, I know, I see it, I'm working, I'm sending ISIS. That, we would... That would be a very surprising answer to us. And that's really a lot like what Habakkuk's hearing here. This awful group of godless people are going to come and bring God's judgment. And so if, if something like that ever happened, that would cause great confusion for us. And yet, we would have to say God is in control. He was in control in Habakkuk's day. He's in control now. And so as we look out and see a confusing picture, we're called to trust that God, in His providence, controls even the godless nations of the earth. And just as Joseph's brother's wicked actions serve God's purposes in leading him to Egypt, so too God uses wicked nations and rulers somehow together to serve his end goals and to lead history to its appointed end. 
God is in fact in control, though we may not always understand it, or even at first like it. Now, God's control and use of evil men and nations raises obvious questions about his goodness. How can these things be? And Habakkuk's going to ask that question. He asks that question at the end of, or we'll see it next week, uh, the, the rest of chapter 1. Habakkuk's going to make a second complaint, because this isn't adding up for him. This isn't, doesn't quite make sense. This is not what he expected. And he's going to ask yet another question of God. And so we're going to see more of it next week. But even now, um, just a couple of things for our consideration. The first thing I want to say is that the Bible doesn't hide from this dilemma. This dilemma of how it is God can control all things, you know, rule by divine decree, using evil, and yet still be good. How do these things work together? And the first thing to note is the Bible does not run from this question. It addresses it quite actually head-on. And I would think you know, a man-made religion would try to erase this difficulty and this tension. And yet the Bible doesn't. It's, it's here. It shows up in numerous places. And it's, n- and, and, and it's not even that you have one text over here saying God's good and another over here saying He rules all things by a divine decree. And then we would look at that and we'd say, maybe there's just a contradiction there. These things come together and are addressed in the exact same place throughout Scripture in numerous places, including right here in Habakkuk. The Bible's not hiding from this difficulty and this tension and this anguish in the human experience. We see them come together. We see it here. We see it in the life of Job. We see it in the life of Joseph. Joseph, I mean, Genesis 45 is very interesting. The brothers are terrified when Joseph reveals himself. After all, they acted in tremendous wickedness in selling him into slavery and treating him very wrongly. But Joseph's response to them twice is, no, no, God sent me here. Twice he says that, God sent me here. And then in chapter 50, we learn again, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. But in in Genesis 45, unbelievably, Joseph understands this is God's doing. God used this. He used their sinful actions to accomplish his purposes. And so the Bible doesn't run from this dilemma. It, It attacks it head on. And secondly, the answer is that we are called to humbly trust that these things ultimately reconcile in the mind of God. And that there are some things that he has simply not revealed to us exactly how it all plays out. And this is common amongst issues of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. We see both things put together in Scripture. Uh, We see that God is sovereign in salvation, but we see that man is responsible for believing or not believing the gospel. Uh, We see even right here that God is raising up the Chaldeans, and yet in verse 11, they're guilty men. They're guilty men, and God's going to hold them guilty, and we'll see that next week as well. Isaiah 10, God's raising up the Assyrians to come bring judgment upon upon Israel, 
and uh, God is wielding them like an axe, he says, and yet he's going to turn around and punish them for what they're doing. And so we see these truths, God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, and, and it's, it's not all tied together for us in a neat bow, but we're called to trust that God is good, that this res- resolves in his mind, and that he is good even in this. Consider Job never really gets an answer for all of his questions. He's got some legitimate questions. He's a righteous man, and he just gets devastated and loses everything, and he's crushed, and his friends are useless. But in the end, as was read earlier, he gets rebuked because he has no idea what he's talking about. He's challenging God. He's demanding an answer from God, an explanation. He crosses that line of, I I deserve an explanation from God about this. And God has to thunder through and say, who is this who darkens my counsel? You have no idea what you're talking about. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? You were nowhere. You were nothing at that point. This is God who spoke all these things into being, who is eternal. I mean, this is, we, again, we tend to bring God down and think less of him and we think much of ourselves. We deserve certain answers. We should know certain things. We should have it all figured out. And God just says, no, no, that's not for you to know. Unless we think, well, that seems rude of God. Job's response is to repent. He says, I despise myself. I spoke of things too wonderful for me. He realizes, I've crossed the line. I don't need an answer. And this is before Job's been restored. He's still in pain at this point. He's still suffering at this point. He's still lost his family. And yet he says, I'm out of my pay grade here, so to speak, and I repent in dust and ashes. I've crossed the line. I've spoken of things I don't know. And he's repenting of it. Again, Nebuchadnezzar learned that nobody has any right to answer back to God and say to him, what have you done? Your boss can ask you, what have you done? Because you answer to your boss. As a parent, you can say to your child, what have you done here? Because they answer to you. You are their authority. No one can say that of God. He does what he pleases, and nobody's in the position to question him about it. The author of Ecclesiastes set out to learn the workings of God, how this world works, to see things from God's view, the big picture. And he repeatedly speaks of how it's out of reach. That's one of the main themes and lessons in Ecclesiastes. So listen to this. He says this, Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. God's ways are beyond us. That's what Ecclesiastes is saying. Try and figure it all out, why it is you labor and labor, and then a righteous man seems to die, like an, and an unrighteous man goes on living. You try and get your head around all that, you will not. You will not see the big picture. You will not see what God's doing in all those things. You won't. And that's what Ecclesiastes is helping us to see. We are to trust, rather, that God is in control and that He is so 
much greater than us and that he's worthy to be trusted with this. He's the one we're to place our faith in. And we'll talk more about that next week as we get to chapter 2 and verse 4. So what God tells us is that he is good. What we see is that he is in control of all things. And we don't fully understand how all that works. But then we remember again, we are finite. And we are to be content with the answers that he does provide. We were not there when he spoke all things into being. And so this is why many old confessions of faith, they state God's providence, that it extends to the fall and to sinful actions, yet so as not to make God the author or approver of sin. Because this is what Scripture teaches. God raises up the Babylonians, and yet they are guilty in his eyes. Their actions are done according to their own lusts and wicked desires for which they must be held accountable for, and they will be, as we'll see more of next week. And so we know God is sovereignly in control, even using wicked nations and kings, and yet he himself is not guilty of sin. So we we are, as we dive into this, wading into some of the most complex questions of life. Matters of justice, matters of God's governance in the world, God's goodness, man's responsibility before God, Christian duty while living in a godless nation. And we are called to trust that God is good. He's of pure eyes, Habakkuk will go on to say, and yet he's completely in control of this rebellious world, moving it towards its appointed end. He's in control even when it's in ways that surprise us or are beyond our ultimate comprehension. And I think there's peace to be had here. You will see a confusing picture as you look at our world. You will wonder how this lines up with God's goodness or His justice or control. And that's what Habakkuk was seeing. And that's what he's asking and addressing. And here comes the assurance from God that He is in fact in control, working in a way that is surprising and not how Habakkuk would have expected. And so he works today, and he always has. And though it doesn't always make sense, we are called to trust God in this, trust his sovereign governance. And just as we bring this to a close, I'd like us to consider for a moment the cross. The Bible says that at the cross, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Acts 2.23 God's saving plan was conceived and decreed that it was planned definitely before the foundation of the earth. And yet, this plan required the means of sinful people. Sinful people of their own inner desire for which they were culpable, nailed Jesus to the cross. And as Jesus was executed, it would have appeared from a human perspective as though this was a complete and utter disaster and failure. And you see this in the confusion of the disciples. 
they get, I mean, it's understandable, I think, from a human perspective. God's plan appeared lost. Things appear out of control. The righteous one has died. The man who has committed no sin has just been executed. Where is the justice in this? And yet, in that moment, God was absolutely, absolutely in control. The good shepherd was laying down his life for his sheep as had been planned and determined from before the foundation of the world. God was in complete control in that moment. And it's him that we are to trust. It's our good shepherd we're to look to for forgiveness of sins. And we're to trust that history is being guided by God's sovereign hand until the right time when Christ returns. We live in what appears to be an out-of-control world. And yet, the Bible's testimony over and over is that God is, in fact, in complete control. At the same time, it's clear that God has seen fit to not give us all of the answers to this, but calls on us to trust Him. And so as we look out and as we see troubling signs that disturb us, injustice that rightly bothers us and concerns us, take confidence in the God who is in control. Yes, it's true. Things may not turn out exactly as we hope or as we would desire, even as Habakkuk learns. And and as we continue in this book, we're going to see this more and more, how Habakkuk responds to God's answer, which is a hard answer for him to hear. So things, it's true, may not go exactly as we hope, and yet we're called to take confidence in God that he is in complete control. And we should be reminded that our greatest need is not physical safety. Our greatest need is not comfort, but to be right with God for the forgiveness of sins. And we're to trust Jesus, who was stricken by God at the hands of lawless men in order that he might bring many sons to glory. It's him we are looking to, him we are trusting. And all the more, as we see this injustice, we look ahead to his return. We know where this ends up. We just don't understand exactly how it gets here and what kind of trials we'll face on the way. But all the more, we look to the end when justice truly will reign in the new heaven and new earth. But even now, your God is in control and he is faithful. He is faithful to you, even if you can't always see it. Trust Him. Let's pray.